Welcome to the St Albans podcast, bringing you news, views and reviews for the city and district of St Albans. In association with the Hearts Advertiser. Welcome to another edition of the St Albans podcast with me, Danny Smith. Coming up on the podcast today, uh, we've got uh, our very own literary correspondent, Claire Hobbert, recommending more books that we can consider reading. Uh, But first, let's go to Matt and Laura from the Hearts Advertiser to find out the latest local news. Hello, Laura Bill. Hello, Matt Adams. Hello. Good to have you here again. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, where are we starting first? Right. Um, Well, St Albans resident Gerald Quinlan has launched a one-man social media campaign to name and shame irresponsible cyclists. In fact, he's not naming them, he's just shaming them. But we'll ignore that. Um, so he's basically using the hashtag St Alban Cyclists on Twitter um, to show people who are cycling on pavements or dangerously. Um, and um, he's put loads of photos on there. Uh, and he takes pictures whenever he sees anyone. Now, he says he was prompted to take action after he was threatened with violence when he challenged cyclists about their behaviour. Um, one person grabbed his telephone and twisted his wrist and threatened to destroy it unless he deleted images of him running him over, almost running him over. So he wants to... He's got nothing against cycling per se. He's a, he got a bike himself, but he said he wants, you know, robust measures required to ensure that this antisocial and dangerous behaviour is stopped. Because otherwise, he said, you know, the freedom that comes with cycling will be taken away because, you know, you'll get hardline legislation coming in. It'd be really toughly enforced, you know, like licenses and, Mm. you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, So, it's you know, nothing he does. He's not asking for anything unacceptable, you know, just a code of conduct and, you know, um, appropriate signage. He's reported loads of this stuff. it, you know, we we, when we ran the story, Laura's story, it prompted a load of people contacting us trying to sort of almost like tarnish his name okay um because he's quite outspoken in this sort of field and they were saying oh you know mm-hmm. have you seen other stuff he's done but that the, the, the crux of it is he, he's not doing anything that you know the the police shouldn't be dealing with or the council you know the pictures are people cutting between pedestrians on the pavement um plowing you know one one guy going between a load of kids in high-vis jackets obviously in a school trip on his bike you know it's it is an annoyance. If you walk down St. Peter Street, people will hack it down there on bikes and we often have to jump out the way, don't we? Yeah, and the thing is as well, I think people don't realise that if you're in a public place, you can be seen You can be seen by CCTV, people can take pictures of you. It's totally legal exactly. to do that in a public place. Yep. So how you're behaving as you're walking or cycling through the high street or driving or whatever is open. If you do, you know, it is open to yeah. that yeah. sort of um, scrutiny, mm. if you like. Yeah. So, so the, the the person that so the, the incident that you started with there, where somebody actually grabbed him mm. when he took a photo, were, did the were the police able to do anything with that? Because I don't have, think so, because he didn't have the. They made him delete the evidence, and you, know, right. you can't prove who anyone is. He just cycles off. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Well. I, all right. Um, I can't help but think that a, a social media campaign isn't really going to make a blind bit of difference. But I do think what he's highlighted is a really serious issue. Mm. I think it's something that I'm sure a lot of us can can talk about. I mean, there there was a, a I don't know if it still happens, but there was a whole an, a time where it seemed to be very cool for people to be be doing a wheelie like yeah, up and down yeah. and, and weaving in and out of cars doing mm. that and 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 going up and down St Peter's Street on the pavement, you know, and 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 
it, it was incredibly distressing for some people. It, it, it was causing all sorts of problems on the road, and it was terrifying some more vulnerable people on the streets. And if you hit a child, they were, you would kill them. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, you know, and also those youngsters that were because it was youngsters mm. who were doing it. They, if they'd fallen off, if they'd fallen backwards, they could have caused quite a serious injury to themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know this has started as a social media campaign, but now it, obviously we, you know, we've highlighted it as well. So it will, you know, it will draw attention to it. And you know, there are a lot of pictures of people. There's nothing. Social media know. campaigns are great, and they often yeah. get people, mm. di- you know, dialogue going about things anyway, don't yeah. they? I just, I, 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 I mean, maybe I'm overthinking this, but it just seems to me that the hashtag itself. It, it, that's just saying St. Orwell's cyclist that, that's, yeah but that, that's I, don't, I think that's quite range. quite beautiful in its simplicity because it's people, got loads of action yeah will get loads of um, but you know you could pick it up anywhere and it's, it's not it's not saying anything negative yeah it's just highlighting what's going on and, do, do, do we know. know what like some of the local cycling groups and things uh, think of this because they might I guess they could be quite supportive of this because they might want not want these people to be ruining their good name well he said um um some of them didn't do any anything about it but one verulam cycle club they were really helpful when he reported one of their members for abusing him and presumably he was wearing something that gave it gave it away and he got a, ver- a verbal warning and they said they were very clear about the conduct they expect from their members mm. because Did he get be- flogged outside the clock tower yeah in it, the stocks it would be yeah. not it would be nice if um uh you know that the local groups because i know there's a couple of local cycling um groups that if if they were to get behind this because i'm i'm certain that any resistance to this would be people saying we're not all like that a mm. lot of cyclists mm. are actually quite diligent and courteous and in fact there's because also there's the other side there's a lot of aggression towards cyclists who are cycling within the bounds of you know of, of, of society you know mm. cycling and f- adhering to the highway code and everything else and drivers who cut them up and yeah give exactly them grief. yeah mm. but i mean i was crossing mm. at the blacksmith's arms um some years ago and and some uh cyclists i had to leap out of the way because he ignored the red light and plowed through you know the, the pedestrians that were there yeah um and it's people like that, really, that, you know... It's people like that that be. make me wish I have an umbrella with me often and you can just stick <laughs> it through the spokes as they go past. But, but that's probably illegal. Probably um, is. So I'm not suggesting anyone does that. Uh, okay, well, so uh, any, any response from the police on this? No, we haven't actually gone to the police about this because they wouldn't... It's, I don't think they'd, they'd bother enforcing it that much. The days of a bobby saying, oh, you get off your, off your bike. No, but sometimes it's the sort of thing that they, if they are so minded, they might make it something of a campaign to, to try to clamp down it. I don't think they've got enough time. No, not these days. Yeah, staffing resources and stuff. Right, okay. Well, there you go. But, but the Hearts Ad have got their teeth into this one and uh, are going to be trying to... What, encourage safer cycling and exactly yeah, yeah. okay well we they've spoken oh. <laughs> <laughs> dearing me i think people need a recovery from that we'll be back with more from laura and matt a bit later time now for our very own literary correspondent claire hobber to uh, return to the st Albans podcast hello claire happy new year happy new year danny nice to be back Good. Thank you. So um, we start 2022 with uh, books about paintings. This is sort of a step up from my earlier suggestion about colouring in books. So I, I, <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I'm still on my first one there, Danny. I just don't <laughs> seem to be able to get through it, not like the other books. <laughs> anyway, books about paintings. We were just having a very brief discussion off air about the, the, the multitude of books about paintings, that it seems that actually this is a subject that... that um, 
it, there, there are a lot of books around that, that that kind of would fall into this category. Yeah, so we're going to come back with a, with another one on these. I think um, it's obviously a rich source of inspiration, and actually in my own life at the moment, it's a source of inspiration that I'm missing. So pre um, COVID, I would often visit exhibitions and art galleries, both sort of little local ones because we've got some great little setups in St Albans um, and also sort of major exhibitions in London and um, with the um, periodic fear of enclosed spaces in particular those exhibitions that are big numbers where you've got loads of people jostling shoulders to look at the same small painting it, it, it's been difficult in Covid times to attend some of these um, so I've really been missing paintings myself. So, but there are so many books where art uh, authors have been inspired by paintings and by the mystery that a painting represents, because often there's no explanation. You just have the picture, and you have to work like a detective to find out what's going on there, what the author meant by it, what was happening both in the author's life and historically around them at that time. It can be uh, a portal into another world. Mm, okay, so uh, tell us about the first one, the first book you've chosen for this month. Okay, so the first one this month is The Muse by Jesse Burton, and it's from 2016. And Jesse Burton scored a big hit with her first novel, The Miniaturist, where she was um, accessing the world of Amsterdam that we see in the paintings of Vermeer. And in that case, she was inspired by the dolls' houses of the period, hence the title, The Miniaturist. And she showed both what a, a wonderful writer she is in terms of her prose, but also what a great historical researcher to be able to um, sum up the values and the atmosphere of a particular period. And that, that book was a big hit. And The Muse also has been really, really praised. And it starts off with a painting that doesn't actually exist, all the books that we're looking at this month the author has also created the painting so we're asked to imagine at the start a picture which has a lion in it a big fierce lion and then in front of the lion um, there is a woman holding another woman's head on a plate and it's said to represent the saints Justa and Rufina who were Spanish women in the third century BCE or AD as we sometimes say um, who uh, defied, they were Christians and they defied the Roman authorities and they were put to death by lions. So that's who on the face of it this painting represents. But we find out, we find out more as the book goes on. Um, so it's a really cleverly written book uh, set in two different time periods. There's uh, in the Closer to the current time period, in 1967, we have a young woman called Adele Bastian who's come from Trinidad and manages to get a job doing admin and reception at the Skelton Institute, which is a an upmarket art gallery in London. So we find out about the situation in London, the art market, the swinging 60s, the attitude to you if you're an immigrant from the Caribbean. And the painting of the lion comes from the Spanish Civil War. And uh, in that time period, we see that story also, the story of the painting's creation. We meet Olive Schloss, who is in some ways privileged, but also very much 
disregarded as a young woman. And she is the daughter of Harold, who is a Viennese art dealer, and an English mother, Sarah. And she's won a place at the Slade, but they don't really believe it that she can do it, that she can be an artist. So she's gone with them um, on their extended holiday in Spain. And there they meet somebody who seems to be the real deal, the romantic Isaac Robles, who is an artist and a revolutionary, and with him his half-sister Teresa, who supports both Isaac and Olive in their art. So there's a mystery surrounding the painting. We don't quite know how it reaches that art gallery in London, which is where Adele first meets it. We don't know quite who painted it, and we don't know what became of them. So these mysteries uh, draw us in through the book and it's very well paced and very easy to read because all the questions it has us asking and there are surprises as the book goes on. It says here that uh, the book has explosive explosive and devastating consequences for all. That, that, that sounds yes. quite, quite a claim at the end there. Not everybody makes it, Danny. It is quite a claim, oh, but it's, it's substantiated. <laughs> yeah, not everybody makes it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it sounds like this... this um, quite a lot in that book. Um, you know, to, to think that, that there have been books about the 60s, books about immigration and, 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 and people who've, you know, who, who were around at those times and, and, and the, the struggles they faced, books about the art world. And it seems this is encompassing all of that. Does it, does it manage it well? Does it, does it do justice to, to those sorts of very kind of strong themes? It really does, actually. I think one thing that's quite bold on the part of Jessie Burton is that she has written from the point of view of uh, a young Caribbean immigrant. Um, I don't know whether she has that strand in her own heritage, but it's 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 uh, the kind of thing that I would personally feel is to stand up and, and do that is quite difficult because people who are closer to that heritage might say, what right have you, you know, you've made mistakes here, but I don't I haven't heard any of that. I haven't heard that anybody's criticised mm. her research and her understanding of that young woman's life at that time. So that's a young woman who did extremely well in school in the Caribbean. Well, of course, the experience for so many immigrants, when they come here, they can be qualified doctors or whatever, and all their qualifications are ignored um, and overlooked by our society. So she ends up, instead of writing, which is what she thought she would be doing, she ends up working in a shoe shop. So again, this this book... The main mystery is around the painting, but we're also very interested in Adele finding her feet again as a, a writer in her own right and um, moving on. So it's it's and she could be sidetracked. She meets a a trendy guy and starts going out with him, and she could be sidetracked by that. So was, was she finding she her, won't be? Was she finding her feet in a shoe shop? Was is that did what I you were saying? Did I just say that, Danny? Yeah. Did I just say that? Oh my gosh! Well, she found a load of feet in there. If that isn't explored more in the book, then, then that's wasted and, and, and you need to be praised more for, for that sort of observation. Uh, she you know, had observation. to leave the shoe shop to find her feet, I think is wow. the thing. <laughs> but actually, do you know, that's just reminded me, it's got, this book has got, so if that wasn't already a great strap line, it actually, in the blurb, the strap line is, a picture hides a thousand words. There Ooh. you go. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's the Muse by Jesse Burton. That's one of uh, one of Claire Hobber's uh, book choices for this month. Uh, we're looking at books about paintings. Hi, I'm Chris Aikman. Join me, local author Howard Linsky, and St Albans podcast producer Sam Rolfe for this St Albans Film Guide. 
Each week, one of us will guide you through the new releases at the cinema and on streaming services. We'll also give you our choice of the best films to watch on UK free-to-air TV for the forthcoming week. So if you're a film lover, join us for a chat about all things movie-related every week as part of the St Albans podcast. New episodes will be released every Friday morning. For more information, visit stalbanspodcast.com or find us where any good podcasts are found. Our next book choice from uh, Claire Hobber, our very own literary correspondent, uh, is The Birth of Venus by Sarah Dunant. Have I said that surname correctly? Yeah, I'd say Dunant. Dunant, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah Dunant's quite a person. She was writing, I think, uh, sort of intellectual thrillers and mysteries up until this point, and I've discovered this was her first historical fiction, and she's very well suited to it because, again, she's capable of doing the research and of juggling all the many different things that are going on in the historical period. So she wrote this about the Italian Renaissance in Florence. So I also kind of imagine her quite enjoying going out there and researching it. And she certainly got the bug because then she went on to, um, so this is about a young woman in a Renaissance palace and the art world in Florence. And she then went on to write two more related books about other aspects of women's life in the Renaissance in the company of the courtesan set in Renaissance Venice and Sacred Hearts set in Ferrara in northern Italy. And she also went on to write another one that's got blood in the title about the Borgias, which is in Rome. So she obviously really enjoyed writing about that period and and doing the research. And these are, they're not just books where you'll learn about the period, but they are quite sensational, full of, um, uh, great plot, great descriptions, uh, lot of suspense, you know, because she's somebody who grew up writing suspense and, and thrillers and so forth. So they're really um, great reads, as well as um, giving you an opportunity to learn more about the period. Okay. Uh, the book you were, the title you were after was Blood and Beauty, The Borgias. Bless you. Thank you. That's all right. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so The Birth of Venus, then, what's this one about? So we're talking about um, books with painting at the centre. So Alessandra Cecchi is a young 15-year-old Florentine woman. So Florence, uh, during the Renaissance, I guess there was a lot going on art-wise, politically-wise, ideas-wise. So it's probably a liberal period, so probably not one of the most oppressive periods for women. But even so, um, she perhaps has the talent to be a painter and uh, that really isn't open to her, just as she's beginning to flower and to take a great interest in the young painter who's painting the walls of the chapel in their palace home. Um, she gets married off to an older man, um, but that doesn't stop her from continuing to take an interest in the painter. But um, at the same time, so this is one of the things I admire about all the books, really, this time. At the same time, life is not uh running smoothly just outside the palace so it doesn't focus just on the domestic there's a monk called Savonarola who uh feels the challenge that all these this liberal thinking these renaissance ideas philosophy and art and maths and writing is having um on the catholic face and he if you've heard the expression a bonfire of the vanities Savonarola Mm. is the guy who made the original bonfire of the vanities at a time when um, masses of books and jewels and works of art were coming to Florence, he burnt them. He said to people, we have to return to a purer life and invited them 
to burn their luxuries and their intellectual objects. And they did that. And I think when they didn't want to, other people helped them to burn their uh, jewels and their intellectual objects. So there's this current, which is actually placing the life, Alessandra feels, of artists in danger. So somebody who is working in luxury in the arts, as her young artist is, might be in danger. So she has she has divided loyalties and she has to decide whether she is going to help or whether she is going to um, go on as, as the um, quiet domestic wife. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it, it sounds like, again, I mean, a, a lot of different sort of themes swirling around in there. I mean, mm. the, Italy in the Renaissance period, you know, that that's going to be um, a, a, a you know that that that's going to be a very sumptuous setting for any yeah. any book, and then and then sort of the backdrop of of the um I don't, what do you call it really the you know the, the sort of the pressures from the the church and or in particular from this monk and his his views on 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 what's coming out of all this and I, I you know that all of that and then you mentioned there about her um as well and did you say or have I just read this on my screen about her sort of the misery of being in an arranged marriage yeah I think I think it could be worse I think the guy she's married to is not a bad man it's just not at all what her heart was set on right um so you know it, it, it doesn't overpaint that but it it's just one of the constraints that oh gosh how many millions of young women over the years in all sorts of different cultures have had to accustom themselves to i guess mm. i mean i guess the other thing is we kind of we're looking at this from the 21st century frame where you know one expects to choose one's own partner whatever one's sex um but actually probably really if you're looking back she would have known that this was what was going to happen to her all her life and um, had slightly different expectations. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, how much, I guess, even a really good writer like Dunant or like Jesse Burton can really give us the mindset of people of that time, you know, how much they can convey it and how much we can't quite step back into that mindset because our own is so different now. I mean, it just—it's it's just a great demonstration, isn't it? That books are wonderful time machines that we can sort of step into and travel to a different, different era, different time, a different place, and immerse ourselves in that and and come away with those experiences. It all, is, yeah, all just from it ink really and paper, is. and it it you know takes us that way. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's so of all the books this week that they're really brilliantly researched. And the other thing that's brilliant about the research is they don't overplay it so when you've read all those books and all those papers and sat for hours in all those libraries to research a historical novel gosh you uh you could show off you know but if you do that your reader's going to take a step back and go way i thought i was reading a novel not um, a historical textbook so having having learned all these things uh sarah dinat and jesse burton have then managed to only only touch on the very relevant bits that impinge on their novel. There was um, there's a quote, and, and I'm not going to remember it properly, but um, a, a reviewer of a of an author once said that um, you could tell that the the reviewer said that they were incredibly grateful for the painstaking research that the author had put into the the novel, and was even more grateful that he spared most of it from the page, because that is brilliant. Yeah, because I think there's there's perhaps a tendency sometimes. For a person, if they've put so much work into it and put, done so much research, they're going to pour it all onto the page to sort of be the, the, the to, to demonstrate the fruits of their labours. Whereas sometimes 
maybe that's not needed. You know, the, the fact they've done the research, you know, is is evident in in what they've said without having to sort of ram it down your throat. So they did all the homework. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there. And some authors manage that by I think Hilary Mantel has become a known authority on her her period of um, actually the same sort of period, the Renaissance period in in England. And I think she actually writes academic papers on that. So that's a way to manage it. If you've done all that stuff and learned about that period, perhaps you can also write nonfiction in another arena rather than wasting it. But but that definitely, absolutely a light touch when you actually write the novel. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's Claire's second choice, The Birth of Venus by Sarah Dunant. Uh, when we return, we will uh, be looking at Claire's final choice of books to do with paintings uh, this month on the St Albans podcast. We're back with Laura and Matt. What's next? Right, well, this is a very heartwarming story, but also one uh, that's heart-wrenching. Um, it's a personal tragedy for a family living in Bernard's Heath. Kaylee Doherty and her partner Sam um, have been through a month of hell after both their daughters needed emergency hospital treatment when their family contracted COVID. So a lesson there about the importance of, you know, still maintaining all the usual restrictions, masks, social distancing. Um, their three-month-old baby Evelyn, who was born prematurely, um, began to show symptoms and had a rapid deterioration. Had to be taken to hospital, where she had seizures and was sedated on a ventilator. Then she was taken to Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, um, and eventually she was breathing independently. But then their daughter um, Chloe was eleven, who um, hadn't had any symptoms, negative PCR. Then her eyes swelled up, and they took her to A and E after advice from one one one. And it showed that she'd had a sinus infection that entered a cavity around her brain and she was in, in severe danger. Mm. So she was rushed to Addenbrooke's and had an eight-hour operation with world-class sur- surgeons from various departments. Uh, so they were both in intensive care. And then um, a few days later, Evelyn, Evelyn, the baby, was found to be stiff and definitely pale. And she flatlined and they spent various times over the night bringing her back. Uh, she's now okay. She's um, she's still in hospital, but Chloe's been discharged. She's having IV antibiotics. Um, the, the baby's going to need lots of other sort of support. But you know, horrific story. But and fortunately, both girls seem to be all right. But the, for the family, they were hit by the financial implications of this because they were. It's to call their savings. They were parking at two hospitals, doing 130 miles of driving. And getting food to keep them going and their business was an online business that relied on christmas trade so they couldn't take any wages and they were like it was crippling for them and they but you know when you're in that situation the pride and everything you don't want to say how it's it's affecting you but um st alban's mums the facebook group their founder karen snook knew the new um kaylee and she got involved and um did a um a, a campaign literally in the last few days and it's raised over seventeen thousand pounds brilliant i know and it's staggering and they're saying you know that the the thing that really got me was when she you know they they said they're obviously blown away but she said you know speaking to the people that help them because of you they can afford the 200 pounds of petrol it's cost to to go them they can eat at lunch times they can without questioning whether their hunger is more important than their overdraft they can buy the girls new clothes. They can pay for private ser- therapy for Chloe, who saw her baby sister being resuscitated. They can pay months and months of unpaid bills and they can fill up their fridge the first time in how long, you know, who knows. So, you know, it's it, it's a horrible tower. And, and as a parent, I would hate to have gone through any any of that 
you know, not let alone the whole thing combined. But it just says what, you know, we do have people around here who just are so happy to give and help out when, you know, and it, and it, there's no reward for it. It's just like, gen, you know, human generosity and, you know, for, you know, generosity of spirit as well as cash. It's amazing how people pull together, isn't it, at, at times of mm. crisis sometimes and, and to see that sort Especially of Especially in this time of year, you know, January yeah. is a really difficult time. Absolutely. And, you know. Financially, and, isn't it? Yeah. And we're, a lot of people are going through tough times at the moment, you know. I think often in these these situations, it's not the people that can afford it who give. It's those that that just think, well, you know, okay, it's going to I'm going to it's going to affect me a little bit. But what if it happened to me? I just want would want someone to reciprocate in the same way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, if you uh, do want to help with that uh, particular fund, I think you can still support them. Yep. Uh, there is a link. Uh, the link is in the description of this podcast episode right now and also on our website, um, com. You can also find that in the article um, that Matt has just read from on the Hearts Advertiser website, heartsad.co.uk. We'll have more from Laura and Matt a bit later. Hi, I'm Elspeth Jackman, inviting you to listen to my podcast, One to One with Elspeth. Find a local person with a story, and I'll be there to draw out all those little details you want to know about. If I'm fascinated, so will you be. Each week, I'll be talking to an interesting character who has a tale to tell. And the beauty of it is, you can listen whenever you want to. To find the podcast, go to your podcasting platform of choice and search for the St. Albans Podcast. Alternatively, go to stalbanspodcast.com slash Elspeth. That's One to One with Elspeth, part of the St. Albans Podcast in association with the Hearts Advertiser. You never know, you could be my next guest. Our final book choice from Claire Hobber this month, uh, and we're looking at books uh, to do with paintings. And this one is, and this I think is the the wins for the best title this month, The Gallery of Vanished Husbands by Natasha Solomons. Yeah, so this one is, I guess it's set at the same sort of time period as the modern part of the book by Jesse Burton. So it's Swinging 60s London. Uh, but without without an older time story running by, so it's not quite as ambitious in the structure in that way. But I really enjoyed this book. So it's about Juliet Montague, who comes from a traditional conservative Jewish background where um, women are expected to lead a quiet and respectable life, so it's quite respectable that she should go to work in an office, but anything to do with the art world isn't. And she, unfortunately, this character, Juliet, is left in a terrible situation. Her husband, um, about whom she didn't know very much when she married him, because he also is Jewish. And at this time, I think Jews are arriving here or have arrived here as a result of of World War II um, and leaving their backgrounds behind, changing their identities and so forth. So this husband, about whom I guess not that much was known when she married him, but appeared to be a nice guy has vanished. And then in the Jewish community, if that happens to you, if you're deserted without a divorce, you have this weird state of of a guna. So you're not quite a widow. You're not free to move on. You kind of have to behave like a married woman, but you don't have the financial income. You can't um, find somebody new. So I guess limbo is a good way to describe 
yeah. state that Juliet finds herself so, in. So, so that yeah, those who who who, who sort of practice that, so that in their culture, only the men can divorce the women. So, if if a man uh, is no no longer around, but he hasn't divorced her, um, I think. I, I, I just read this. Um, yeah, it says here that uh, the way you could describe that is being a living widow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, very, very, must be a very difficult situation to be in, one would imagine. Yeah, except widows can move on, obviously. Yeah. So it's worse. It is worse. You know, yeah. she's quite young. She's about 30 when, or y- younger than 30, and with two children when this happens to her. So the art element is that when he take disappears, or there's an art element, a really strong art element running through it. But I guess the painting at the centre of it is a painting of her. So there's a good portrait of her, a really good portrait of her, that I think her father accepted in part payment or got commissioned when she was nine. And it's clear to her that that's a good artwork. And it disappears when her husband disappears. So weird or what, not only does he leave her, but he obviously doesn't completely want to leave her because he takes with him. This portrait, he um, cuts it out of the frame and goes. So she's um, both stymied because of this loss of her husband, but also really cross that this portrait of her went. So um, I guess the inciting incident, the the thing that kicks the main plot off is that it's her 30th birthday. She's been living this terrible life. She has saved up and she wants a refrigerator. That is, she's saved up and saved up. It's her birthday, damn it, and she's going to go and get the refrigerator. And she's walking down the Bayswater Road in London, and she sees an amazing painting by an artist, and it's of another young woman, Um, and she believes in this artist, and she has exactly the right money to buy this portrait. The artist sees something in her too and says, why not let me paint you? I would like to paint you, and I'll charge you what what I was going to charge for the portrait of the other girl. So she spent her refrigerator money on that. So it's a big decision. She's she, but also it shows she trusts her own judgment. She can spot a good artist when she sees one. Okay. And um, that's how it starts. And what I love about this one, so often with art, when you're talking about women under art, particularly historically, they haven't succeeded as painters. They haven't been given the opportunities. People haven't believed that women could be good painters. Um. So they become muses, and that's often there's often the, the, the question, you know, muse, artist, artist, muse. Um, but this, she finds a quite different role for a woman. So she's an attractive young woman, and the artists want her as their muse. But she starts to be an entrepreneur. She helps them to set up a gallery. She's got really good taste. She's got, um, she gets the right people in. She knows how to host. And she's got a really good business head. She's been working in admin in her father's business for years. And she starts to help them make money. She can spot a really good artist. She can foster them. She can get people in to buy their work. So I love the fact that this finds a different role for a woman in art. Now, given that um, both this book and The Muse are both set in uh, London in a very similar time period, is there something about the art world of that time that, that makes it such a, an, an, an attractive um, topic for, for books such as this? Yeah, well, I guess it's it's a time when we were great, you know, in modern art. And it's also, socially, it's a lovely time to talk about because it's the swinging 60s. So it was a really party city and there was a lot of social mobility as well, which both 
um, Odell from Trinidad and Juliet here from the Jewish community are experiencing in these different novels. And, you know, if you were daring enough to uh, meet with these unconventional people, they were prepared at a time when I guess probably it still was run by and started by people from private schools, people with money. But they were interested in letting other people in and promoting other people and so forth at that time, probably much more so than at the moment, you know. So it was a really interesting time to be around. Interesting as well, that as you just mentioned there, that, that in fact both the protagonists were, were immigrants uh, of, of you know, perhaps um, the the first one, o- o- Odell, maybe being a more recent immigrant, but but both people who are sort of adjusting to to new communities in one way or another. Um, and uh, does this, I don't know, does this say something about art being something of a, a leveler that you know, no matter your background or your, you know, that the, the art can appeal to all? Yeah, it's it's a hugely risky thing, isn't it? To Instead, of, I guess as an immigrant, maybe the temptation is to toe the line and try and fit in and try to escape notice and be ultra respectable. On the other hand, um, there was this art world, wasn't there, that was um, bohemian, that was, you could lose, I guess, your reputation if you're looking at both Adele from her sort of Caribbean Christian background and Juliet from her conventional Jewish background. They had a reputation to lose. But they had so much more to gain if they got involved with those people who are willing to get involved with them and were saying, we like the look of you. Come on in. Come and work with us. You know? Yeah. OK. That's um, that's the Gallery of Vanished Husbands by Natasha Solomons. That's uh, Claire Hopper's third book choice for the month. All of Claire's book choices, uh, you can find them in the description of this um, um, episode right now. If you look in the description of this podcast episode, it's right there. Also on our website, stalbanspodcast.com, you can see those book choices. Uh, and also um, we will uh, include the details of your forthcoming course that's at the Abbey, um, Dream Country. Yeah, in two weeks' time, on the 22nd, Saturday the 22nd in the morning, there's an exhibition down there uh, of Quentin Blake's drawings from the BFG, Roald Dahl's The Big Friendly Giant, the BFG, which is a wonderful book, and a book as well that talks a lot about words and about dreams. And it's such a great jumping-off point for uh, a class on creative writing for adults. I'm rereading the BFG now, and I'm just astonished at Roald Dahl's, oh, virtuosity with words with making up new words with imagining dreams he'll describe a dream in just a few words and it takes you there it takes you to a different place in a different time so i'm interested if we can get together in the beautiful surroundings of the abbey for a little bit of peace on a saturday morning and come up with some little pieces of writing some little short stories which have that amazing dream quality to them Okay. Yeah. And, and the details of that course, um, uh, Dream Country, again, the link uh, to to the details uh, is in the description right now of this episode and also on our website um, at stalbanspodcast.com. Claire, thank you very much once again for sharing with us some of your book choices and that uh, we look forward to hearing from you around about the same time next month. Yeah. Can I just say about the course as well? Do come along, even if you haven't written before. It's something you're thinking about doing. This is quite a good taste because it's just two hours and we'll look at some of the most important elements of creative writing. So everybody's welcome. Okay, so as long as you know how to use a pen, you're welcome. Absolutely, or a typewriter, (laughs) or a computer, (laughs) or a mobile phone even. (laughs) Claire, thank you very much. We'll we'll catch you again next month. Thank you. God bless, Danny. One final news story now from the Hearts Advertiser team of Laura and Matt. 
Hello right, so again. Hello. Yes, follow up for last week's story about the vintage markets, Sunday market. Oh yeah, what happened with that? Well, this is this was cancelled by the bid, the business improvement district, because of very well conf- conflicting reasons. Uh, initially, they blamed the weather, mm. um, the spread of Omicron, um, resources, health and safety issues. Didn't you say that they said they blamed the council as well? Yeah, last and then week? they came back and they said, "Oh, actually, no, we backtracked on this. It's the." council's fault and the whole thing with the reopening city centre roads um, which were closed since the end of the first lockdown. Now at the time St Albans Council denied they had anything to do with it and this week they stepped in to save the day. So um, the new market manager he um, confirmed uh, to the person in charge of the vintage market that they've signed off um, the continuation of the market for the time being while they can t- until they can come up with a more permanent solution. So it's going ahead this Sunday and for the rest, the next three weeks, uh, sorry, three months as well. So not being stopped, carrying on regardless. So all really, really good. Okay. Now, something that we couldn't work out last week, but why, and I don't know if we've got any further this week with this or not, but, but why was the reopening of the high street where the market never, ever happened, a reason for the market not happening? Still don't that, know. That vintage market never, it was always no. in St. Peter Street, wasn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, stopped. Mm-hmm. Well, I did sort of go down to the clock tower, but it didn't go into the high street or anything like that. No. But the good news, it just shows the power of a local newspaper, Well, they've it? said, they've actually said it's thanks to us because we highlighted it and we put it on the front page and everything and it's sort of, you know, created dialogues and stuff. But um, the, Find um, your local newspaper. Absolutely. Um, Jenny Titmus, who runs the market, she said, you know, the bid played no hat part, uh, no hand in sorting it out, and the chair didn't even know that SADC was sort, was going to fix it for them. So, you know, this is not a good story for the bid because they're up for renewal um, if for the next five years. They've got you know the local traders going to vote on whether to continue them. So this sort of thing um, doesn't paint them in a good light. No, it did seem kind of strange that, that they'd announced that they were cancelling the, the vintage market and the and there was another market wasn't there the vegan market isn't happening because the organisers can't turn it around quickly enough I don't think right so, so that one isn't back no, on but the no. vintage market is yeah. and that's this coming Sunday isn't it yes it is yeah I saw I saw a banner advertising it on Monday so mm. I, I'd guess something had changed mm. there uh, oh it's great news yeah okay well well done well, and well done to, to you know the, the power of journalism there as you said Laura that was Matt that one wasn't it really it was me yeah well done, thanks. Matt Adams. Yeah. Well, and also, I'm sure the podcast, because we talked about it last week. Did yes, they thank indeed. the podcast as well? Uh, no. Not directly, not no. with their words, but maybe no. with their... With their, with their hearts. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. And that, we'll take that. Yeah. The, li- the listener. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I'm sure the listener will be grateful. Uh, okay. Well, uh, Laura, Matt, thanks very much uh, for sharing local news with us as ever. If you want to know more, check out their website, heartsad.co.uk. Thanks also to uh to our very own literary correspondent uh, to claire hobber and uh, the details that claire shared with us uh, can also be found in the description of this episode right now and also on our website sinalbanspodcast.com coming up later this week we've got the film guide with chris aikman that's on uh, friday and uh, that's where chris will be looking at uh, new releases in the cinema the latest streaming uh, new original movies being released and the best of free to air tv movies as well and then uh, Sunday, it's uh, the Dagenham Street Baptist Church virtual service with Simon Carver and Monday, one-to-one with Elspeth. To find out more, check out our website, stalbanspodcast.com. Also, we are on the social media channels. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we are at St Albans Podcast. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of the St Albans Podcast with Danny Smith. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or a podcast platform of your choice. This will help us reach more listeners. Join us, the St. Albans Podcast, next Wednesday for more news, views and reviews. In the meantime, commit no nuisance. Produced by Samantha Rolfe. Logo and artwork by David Ellis. This is an independent production in association with the Hearts Advertiser. If you would like to become a community partner or a sponsor of the podcast, please visit stalbanspodcast.com for more details.